Hey folks, Pastor Casey here. We had a bit of a technical error this Sunday and had to use a poor quality audio recording from a camera that happened to record the service in full. If this is a tough listen for you, we've also posted a transcript of this sermon on our website. You can access that link on our Facebook page. Grace and peace. Well, this morning I have the pleasure of continuing week two of our sermon series, Throwback, Sunday School Classics. In this series, we are taking a look back at some of the stories that maybe you associate with, like, children's Sunday school, or maybe that you read with your kids out of a children's Bible. They're the stories that you've heard the most, that you're most familiar with, and the ones that you have a tendency probably to just kind of scoot on through, unfortunately. I think sometimes we think because they're so popular with children, because we're trying to give a biblical foundation, uh, sometimes we're like, I read Adam and Eve before. I've read that story. I don't need to really spend time in that again. But when we spend time as adults, uh, we find, actually, these were adults in these stories, uh, not kids. And uh, there's probably new layers of revelation and takeaways for us to unpack. And so we're spending the next... Uh, 12 weeks or something like that, uh, going through a bunch of these Sunday school classics. And so uh, this morning, I'm excited to continue on. Uh, last week, we did look at the story of Adam and Eve, and today, I get to continue with the story of Noah and the flood. Uh, you can go ahead, if you brought a Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis 6. That's where our story will begin today. We're not going to read all of the scriptures because uh, this story takes place over like three or four chapters. And uh, we spend our whole time just reading all of this. Um, and, uh, and I think the, the points that God really led me to this morning uh, really come out of this opening verse here in chapter 6. We'll be at verse 5 if you find that. I wanted to open to you just to, I don't know, just to be honest with you. Uh, this, this scripture uh, and I really wrestled a lot this week. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where maybe you've, you've read a, a scripture that, you're like, man, this is kind of a hard truth. This is really a, a difficult reality or a really gloomy situation. And I spent the first several days of this week thinking, how am I going to preach this? How am I going to teach and encourage people with, with what's honestly a pretty gloomy text with, with plenty of good and gracious, amazing aspects um, but I, I really had to wrestle with this text this week. And if you've been through that experience, I just wanted to honestly just testify and glory to God this morning because I spent so much time this week really anxious and concerned about where this would go. But by the end of the week, as I just continued to pray and lean into the Lord and, and study and find more resources, God has continued to illuminate so many hopeful and encouraging realities. And I, I just hope that that can be a takeaway for you as you consider reading the Bible for yourself, as you press into difficult texts, hard realities sometimes that we face in the scriptures, uh, that God is good, that he brings revelation to his word when we seek it, that there's tools out there to help you, to empower you. And so please, if you ever find yourself looking at a difficult text, continue on, be faithful to press in because God has something for you in it. So we'll find ourselves in Genesis 6. Uh, we're about 1,650 years away from where we started our story last week with Adam and Eve. You can calculate that through uh, genealogy, uh, the, kind of the line of Adam that's accounted for in Genesis chapter 5. The earth has had some time to populate and begin the process of 
building up, but quite honestly, it's, it's not at the scale that we know. Uh, I, I think I read something the other day that uh, they estimate that it was around 2% of the population that we live with to today is what was present at Noah's time. So it's not like this super filled, overflowed world. The, the world is growing at this point. It really wasn't until um, in the, the first couple centuries, uh, over the last couple thousand years, that we began to see this massive expanse of, of really filling the earth with people. And so the earth is in this process of filling up. We've got 1,500 years or 1,600 years. And the passage here tells us the state of things as we open Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the ways that you've protected and preserved it, that you've made it useful for us today still, um, that it's alive and it speaks to us and has truth that transcends time and culture and history. And so, Lord, we, we look at it today and we ask that you'd help us, uh, help us press into your truth and help us find out what it says about you and what it says about the life that we're called to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Genesis 6 opens by telling us that the human project continues to not go so well. Uh, you don't just have Adam and Eve rebelling against God, but this tendency continues to spread deeper and deeper down family lines. Everyone ends up living with this kind of brokenness, this crookedness, just like Adam and Eve have. And our story starts on this really sad note. Uh, this approaching crisis as God feels this deep regret for the creation that he's made in the state of the world. The story continues over the next couple of chapters with kind of the following trajectory of, I've outlined it for you here since we don't have the time to really read through it all. Genesis 6, 9 through 8, 14 records the story of Noah, a blameless man who's chosen by God to lead his family and, two, and sets up two kinds of every animal to escape God's coming judgment that would take place through a flood. The scriptures tell us that he is 600 years old at the time, uh, something that we can wrestle with through another time, uh, and that he and his family ought to build this massive boat or an ark that can hold them and two pairs of every kind of living animal to escape God's judgment and serve as kind of the refresh or restart of God's creation. God delivers Noah and his family through the flood. The flood waters come for 40 days and then reside over the earth for a total of 150. When the waters subsided, they would end up settling in some mountains where they were able to walk out. And they were able to begin by creating a covenant or engaging in this, this promised relationship with God, where God promises never to destroy the earth again. And in our kids' story, so much of the focus, specifically in this Noah story, is around the ark narrative. Uh, this 600-year-old man is asked to do something that culturally everyone would have thought is like the craziest, most absurd thing ever. And everyone's laughing at him and 
making fun of him and all these kinds of things, and he just goes and builds this boat. And the problem is that a lot of our scriptures don't have some of that kind of narrative. If you read this through, it's, it's really quite brief. It gives a lot of descriptions, but some of the narrative pieces that we've incorporated, maybe because of like Bruce Almighty or because of the, the other Noah movie uh, that, that we won't talk about, uh, that, that there's just a lot of pieces that we've kind of incorporated in the story over time. And we kind of walk away with this truth of like, listen and obey God even when he asks you to do crazy things because God has planned that he'll be faithful if he asks you to do something crazy. And I don't think that's like a wrong aspect to focus on. And I don't want to shame on those like levels of takeaways where we learn something from somebody's character or behavior. I think that's valuable. And I'm grateful that the scriptures have a, a, a wide array of of takeaways and truth points for us to observe and model in our lives as we trust God and try to walk out these truths. But I think there are two often overlooked takeaways from the story of Noah and the flood that we should really consider that I, speak, that I think speak to maybe some of the culture's questions around a story like this, um, but something that should give us hope and insight for the world to come as well. The first takeaway is that God judges the wicked. And that this is good news. Now, I'll be honest, Noah's story is a bit dark. It's very sad. It's a, it's a heavy reality. And it even finds itself with quite the sad setup. Genesis 5 tells us the story of Adam's family line. You can go read it. And one of the really sad things that's, that's present in this is nothing is really notable except for the fact that somebody lives X amount of years and then they died. And that's just kind of the repeat. So-and-so lived X amount of years, and then they died. They fathered so-and-so, but then they died. It's just this ongoing narrative of just death and death, and there's nothing else extremely notable. There's, there's one exception in there. Um, he's, he's a cool story as well, but that's for another time. But the, the, the big narrative that you read in Genesis 5, the sad reality of the world, is that there's nothing really notable about the fact that people lived and they died. And many people have a problem with Noah's story because of the judgment narrative. How could a loving, kind, and gracious and merciful God that we all say and believe that he is going flood the whole world to some that feels inconsistent with what they've heard about the behavior of God? And in this story, we are confronted with a difficult, biblical truth. God judges the wicked. You know, certain attributes of God are easy to receive or easy to talk about. One of my favorite verses ever is Exodus 34, 6 through 7. It says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I love thinking and talking about God's compassion, his grace, how he's slow to anger, and how he's bounds in love and faithfulness, how forgiving he is. I can talk to anyone about that. I can share about those experiences in my life with God. Those are things that people find attractive and compelling and moving about God's character and thinking about having a relationship with him. But then you read a story like Noah, and you find maybe a, a psalm where Noah is, or where David is, is asking God to smite his enemies, and maybe you go read Revelation, and you read about the coming judgment, and you're confronted with this difficult reality that God judges the wicked. 
that yes, he has grace and mercy and all these amazing things, but that his patience is not forever. And talking about God's judgment can make us feel icky. It makes you feel like you're one of those street preachers shouting warnings over crowds of people that didn't ask to hear those messages. I went to a Mariners game uh, just last month, and this dude was like walking all around the gates at the home plate entrance with a sign and a speaker, and was just shouting over everyone. And the verses he was picking, and like not only like super hermeneutically incorrect, because he's taking like prophecies for very specific nations in the Old Testament and just like declaring them over the crowd, but it's just like the worst posture when you think about trying to invite somebody into a loving relationship with God. And sometimes we kind of feel that way when we're talking about judgment. I'm, I'm grateful for a better way of beginning to reach people for Jesus. Romans 2.4 says that it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. But still we find ourselves with these verses that talk about judgment narratives, both past and ones that are upcoming, that we kind of have to wrestle with, that we have to work with. The tendency is to want to hide away like this is some skeleton in God's closet. And I think we need a framework to help us know how to hold these truths and how to communicate them when it comes up in conversations with others. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So to begin this conversation, it's worth noting that this category of wicked applies to every human that has ever lived. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. According to the scriptures, from start to finish, the only way of escaping judgment is to be in covenant relationship with God. We see several covenants made between God and humans throughout the scriptures. I have another list of them on the slides as well. Uh, the first is uh, Noah's covenant that we see in Genesis 9. You have Abraham's covenant that's made, Moses's, David's, and then ultimately the new covenant that we end up getting to walk in with Jesus today, the, the final covenant that God would make. And a covenant is an agreement. You might think of it today similarly to like a legally binding agreement between two parties in a court of law. I agree to do this, and you will do that. And we are both held to these stipulations and promises, and as long as we're upholding this, we're all good. Everything's going to be great. But if we break stipulations, if things go wrong, and there's going to be consequences, and we might need to find how to repair our broken relationship. Each biblical covenant establishes the basis of the relationship, the conditions for that relationship, promises, and consequences if those conditions are, were not met. So for one to move from the category of wicked and worthy of receiving judgment into the status of righteousness and receiving salvation, they must enter a covenant with God. Although humanity is constantly sinful and rebellious towards God, he continues to pursue relationship with humans by creating these covenants, graciously offering an avenue back into relationship with him. Now we're blessed to live in the final covenant. All others have been fulfilled or are being fulfilled through Christ. And that covenant states that we receive salvation by receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And when we do that, he changes our hearts to desire to be more like God. Jeremiah 31 says that God writes the law on our hearts. It's all of a sudden, it's a work that God is doing to change us. It's not trying to live up to some commands, but it's actually asking God to 
do a work inside of you that changes things away from our wicked disposition that we would go and desire to obey God and to live out His commands that He intends for us. So the only way to escape this diagnosis of wickedness is by being in covenant relationship with God, which means that believing for us today that Jesus lived a perfect life, that He died for sinners, that He rose from the grave, and when you do believe this and receive Him, the Holy Spirit fills your heart to sanctify you or to mature you so that you can become more like Christ throughout your life. And here's why wickedness must be eradicated from the earth. When sin reigns over people's hearts and minds, it spreads and it destroys the world around them. This was the world when Noah was alive. And it's the world when sin reigns in the hearts and minds of men. Genesis 6, 11 through 12 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. When we live apart from God in the ways that he's called us to, we end up participating in the ongoing destruction of God's creation. You see, sin is not bad just because God decided to make this list of things that he said, okay, decided that this is good and this is bad. I want to limit fun so you don't get to do this, you don't get to live this way. I want you to live this way. But God has actually woven truth and goodness and an order to life in everything that we do. And there's consequences, both natural and supernatural, that damage ourselves, others, and the world around us when we live in sinful ways. God has ordered a way that is good and right for the world. When people obey God and follow his example of how to be human, we find flourishing and blessing. When people pursue sin, when people live out their fleshly desires, we find that it leads to brokenness and chaos for themselves, for others, and for the world around them. A great example of this is found in the Ten Commandments. You know, it's easy to look at such a clear list that it's like, oh, this is just something God said that you need to do to please me and to honor me and all these kinds of things. But on another level, think about a world or a community that does not kill, that never commits adultery, that doesn't steal or covet one another's belongings. All of a sudden, you find that you're living in a very safe and blessed and flourishing world where you're not ever worried about people doing wrong to you, you're not ever feeling threatened to do wrongdoing to somebody else. A community that lives this way would flourish and enjoy life to the fullest. But we know that humans are not this way. We know that murder, theft, adultery, and a plethora of other realities all exist in the world around us, and they have natural and real consequences that affect ourselves, others, and the world. God is not trying to limit anyone's fun by creating an order in this life, but he's trying to bless it and show the best possible way of existing. And if this is the truth, that God has a way that is intended to lead us to flourishing and blessing with him and with one another, then it is good news that there will be a day when wickedness is eradicated and completely removed from the world. It is good news that God looked over the world that Noah lived in and said, this is not going to end well. If there's just one righteous man, like the story would say, Noah was the one righteous man that God could find on the earth, this is not going to end well if he's the only one trying to do this. We need to remove wickedness. We need to start over and do something new. 
if God did not create this kind of like hard reset through Noah and his family and the animals that he would bring with him, the violence and brokenness of sin surely would have destroyed everything. You know, so many people talk so much about, you know, problematically with the story of Noah about how God destroyed the world, but they're totally overlooking the reality that sin was actually the thing that was destroying the world. Sin was corrupting and creating such violence that there was there was a path that was going to lead to no flourishing, no goodness, no blessing. So God decided to start over. He graciously chose an avenue for humans to be in relationship with the Lord and moving towards God's ultimate plans and purposes for the world. We didn't deserve it. As far as I'm concerned, God had every right to scrap everything and start over with some new kind of creation, some kind of new advanced form of humanity that wouldn't but he remained faithful to the ones that bear his image by removing the overwhelming wickedness of the ancient world so that he could create a covenant with Noah and so that he could have an opportunity for the future of humanity to be in relationship with God again. Our second observation from this story is that when the flood subsides and they leave the ark, God offers purpose to humans again. Genesis 9, 1-3 says, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to him, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. If you've read through Genesis or the Bible before, this verse might kind of have some pieces to it that uh, kind of ring a bell to you. Not from this story. Uh, if you read back just a little bit of the ways in Genesis chapter 1, you will find that God is actually reinstituting the purpose that he gave humanity when he originally made them in the garden. Genesis 1, 26-29 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God calls Noah, his family, and his descendants back into their original purpose. He gives them the same job that he had given Adam and Eve at the beginning of the Bible. Build the earth and help God rule over it and steward it. Now, if I'm in God's shoes, uh, and I'm a very fickle and often skeptical person, I'm probably sitting here looking at my creation of humans and thinking, uh, maybe we'll find another job or another role for you. Uh, have you ever been in a work environment where, like, someone has to be reassigned? Uh, maybe you had to be reassigned for a job. Like, your boss is like, man, I love your heart, your commitment to this company, but we probably promoted you too early. You weren't ready to be a manager. You kick button sales, you don't know how to lead people. And all of a sudden, you have to shift and you have to say, we're going to put you somewhere else uh, because this role it's not working, it's not good. You see it a lot in the church world. Uh, someone who's like a great preacher or teacher, all of a sudden like they get this lead pastor job somewhere and then they find out like, 
oh, you're not good at leading people. Like, you can teach the Bible, uh, but now you have to run an organization, and you weren't ready for that. So maybe you should go back to a specialty role. You know, sometimes in our world, we just look to reassign when things aren't going well. We'll say, what's version two, or where can we put this box somewhere else to try to make this work? And although humanity has done nothing to earn the right to continue on in their role and in their relationship with God, the Lord is steadfast and committed to seeing humanity experience the life that he intended for them to get to live. There is no option B or alternative plan or a new role for humans to find themselves in as God resets his creation. But he looks at Noah and his family and he looks far down the line at you and I and he says, I've chosen you. I made you in my image. You are my special creation, unlike anything else in the world. We will do this together. I have a plan and a purpose for you. And you don't have to read too much further to see God's plan of how this would be sustained. Opportunities and avenues for relationship with God through the covenants made with Abraham, Moses, David, and then ultimately and finally through Jesus. Despite our sin, God offers us this unique and remarkable role of getting to steward God's world and his creation with him. We don't deserve it. We've not earned it. You and I continue to act just like Adam and Eve and just like Noah and just like all the people in the ancient world. But God says, no, I have a plan and a purpose for your life and I will create a way for you to be in relationship with me. At the end of the day, Noah is not a story about destruction, but it's a story of grace. Grace when the world was about to destroy itself with sin. Grace when humanity had abandoned and disqualified themselves from living in God's purposes. God had every right to end the human project and to start over, but he chose a way where humans could escape the destruction that they were causing to themselves and to the world around them, and he offered to renew his plans and purposes with them again. God is committed to his image bearers, even when they aren't committed to him. But what's so cool about the story of Noah is that there's so many realities and things like this that transcend into our relationship that we get to have with God through Jesus. That Christ remains obedient and faithful to the Lord to protect and to preserve you. You have a righteous status, not because of anything you've earned or anything you've done, but because Christ has made a way so that you can have a relationship with God, so that you can continue on in his plans and purposes, even though you don't deserve it, even though you mess up, even though you make mistakes. Christ has created a way for you to remain in relationship with God and for you to walk out the fullness of life and to be transformed from the wickedness that results in the decreation of the world around us. Worship team, you can come on up. There are several takeaways or next steps that I have for us as we leave here today. First, a story like this ought to inspire us to reflect about the wickedness that God desires to remove by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Romans 6, 1-4 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in the newness of life. 
While we are saved and covered by Jesus' blood, by believing in what he's done for us on the cross, we have eternity secured in the Father. There's a newness of life that you and I are called to walk in as creations in Jesus. One where we walk in his purposes and rid ourselves of the sin and brokenness that we cause to ourselves, to others, and to the world around us. You don't get saved and changed completely overnight. That would be amazing. But you get to walk a life of learning and growing and maturing. That's that word sanctified. Where Christ is doing something new in your heart and helping you become the fullness of who he's made you to be. Where there's sin in your life, ask him to help you change. Find accountability and help through community walk in the fullness of who God has called you to be. No one expects you to be perfect. You're allowed to mess up. You're allowed to be progressing towards what God's made you to be, but grow and mature towards Christ's likeness. Second, the reality of judgment towards the wicked ought to inspire us to live a life that cares deeply about others hearing about what Jesus has done for them, demonstrating mercy, grace, and loving kindness to humanity. God has done an incredible thing to save us from the wickedness that we are causing. But his patience is not forever. He has promised that he will return, and he will judge, and he will remove all wickedness from this world. May we live with an urgency that invites people to know the living God, to take on his purposes, and to receive eternal life, where we will live without the chaos, destruction, and sin that we all know too well. Your neighbors, your classmates, your friends, your family, they need to know about what Christ has done for them, what he's offered for them now, and what is to come. They need to know the good news that God loves humanity so much that he would do something about the wickedness in ourselves and in the world around us so that we can live someday in a world without pain, tears, sadness, hurting, and the destruction that all of us are too aware of. God lovingly offers a way for us to experience the fullness of new life that is here now in Christ and is coming in his return. Finally, I think a reality like this should move us into thanksgiving and praise. That we worship a God who does not sit back unattached from the realities of the darkness and brokenness in our world. He doesn't sit there and just watch us take on the consequences of sin, the burdens of heaviness that we all have experienced. But he entered into our narrative so that we would be freed from the captivity of sin, from the destruction that it's causing in the world around us. God loves you so much and is so committed to you in the plans and purposes he has for your life and for eternity that he has something for you. And that's worth praising him. That's worth worshiping about. When there was nothing we could do to free ourselves from sin and brokenness in this world, God entered into our story and provided salvation and life eternal. That's the reason we praise him this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness towards us. I thank you, God, that you have not stood far off, detached and unaware of the realities we're experiencing. But Lord, you entered into our story and offered us grace. I thank you too, Lord, that you have promised there is a day that all wickedness will be removed from this world. That is good news for us. Good news for us who have been plagued with broken, heavy realities all throughout our lives, but there will be a day that we don't have to walk in the consequences 
and, and chaos of destruction of sin. We just praise you for that this morning. But we yearn for your return. God, I pray too that you would help us think of others in this. Help us avoid the pitfalls of just thinking that I just got to get saved and preserve myself for the day that Jesus comes back. Help us care deeply about others knowing this truth too. That we would live lives that show through our actions and through our words that you are the one who is offering new life and life eternal. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we close the worship.